0: y en tu rapeta and welcome to the Indian Ocean series of the Ajahn Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Stevenson. Here with me today is Amim Lotvi, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at the National University of Singapore. Thanks, Amim, for joining us today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Amim is here today to talk about the Baloch or Balochi diaspora in the Indian Ocean in the context of his upcoming book project, Conquerors Who Do Not Rule. So, Amim, who are the Baloch and how do they come to be conquerors who do not rule?
1: Thank you so much for having me. Firstly, my my book project grows out of my own dissertation work, which was really about this diasporic group that has its homeland divided between Iran, Pakistan and Afghanistan, mainly the Baloch, but they have a large presence in the Gulf. My dissertation was about these people. And one of the common problem I ran against when I was talking with them, is that there was in common discussions there was a lot of mention of the fact that Baloch had a glorious history in the past, that they had conquered lands as far as East Africa, they had been instrumental in consolidating the Mughal Empire, they had been instrumental in forming the Albu Saidi Empire, they had been the pillars of several princedoms in Sindh, in Punjab, and so on. But somehow the what this said presence in the conquest and all these territories was not reflected in historical documents. So these were conquerors who did not have histories written after them. And that was, to me, a strange phenomena. It was a strange phenomena because you normally assume there is a victor who writes the history. But these were victors, these were conquerors who do not seem to have history. What they had instead of by history, I mean that they did not have textual histories. Of course, they had folklore, they had a lot of stories, they had a lot of poetry that they memorized all, all of these things in. It sort of makes sense of, how do you make sense of, of this phenomenon? Because folklores and those kind of non-textual historical sources, you normally associate with subaltern groups. So it's groups that have been left out of power who fight back with history through speech and through folklore and so on. And it's kind of in between place and trying to figure out that there were conquerors who do not have one history. And let me to make a differentiation between the fact that not all conquerors get to write history. It's only the conquerors who come to rule after the conquest that actually write history. And it makes sense because history in itself is it's an instrument of power. So you need to write yourself in history in order to legitimize your rules. So kings would get themselves placed in a long line of rulers and say I'm only the latest. Or they would have their practices. There's laws enshrined into text as law almost and setting up the what is the institutions itself. But people who are conquerors who might conquer and move on do not have those kind of needs. They do not have that kind of imperative to write themselves in history. So trying to, a lot of time I spent was trying to figure out what is it that why are they conquering and moving on? What is happening over here? And one of the things that I ended up against is that for them conquest was not about rule, but it was about trying to open channels of mobility for other people. So... It was a very different logic of understanding of war as well. So th- most of the times, the story went that Baloch went and he conquered, for example, let's say fort in Mombasa. Soon after the conquest, you had a large number of families of soldiers who came and who settled following the conquest And it became these myths that people followed to different places. And it really opened people from Balochistan to a wide geography of circulation on the basis of these stories, these myths, these really like elements of, of a past that in which they conquered but did not end up grueling.
0: So can you tell us a little bit more about the Baloch or Baloch people? For people who work on the Indian Ocean, this will be a, a familiar ethnic group, more or less. Can you give us a more complex picture of who, who the Baloch are, where they're geographically spread, and if in each of these places their ties to the places are uh, related to this initial, at least, military conquest.
1: Yeah, so Indian Ocean people would be familiar with the below but they always often get categorized alongside a list of other cosmopolitan group and in placing them with these other groups I feel that you miss out on what is the most conceptually interesting thing about them is that if actually it's a lot of, large person of them were involved in a very specific line of work and which was soldiering and in that sense they can tell us a story that is very different from the one that let's say you can tell with Gujaratis or Yemeni traders in which it's about trade it's about making Making business connections. This is a different kind of relationship because of the fact that they were traveling soldiers. Empirically, there's more Baloch today outside of Balochistan than in Balochistan. Karachi in itself, which is, I mean, it depending on, on, on your own historical vision, it could um, be considered part of Balochistan, but at least it's not now. That city in itself has more Baloch than Balochistan itself. So it's a, it's a society that's incredibly cosmopolitan. It's incredibly diverse. And its, its, its range of circulations go from in the east, stretches all the way to Delhi and in northern India, all over Punjab, but also on the west towards the Gulf into the East African coastline. And the interesting thing, about them is that in all of these different places, if you see them, the groups that have settled over time look very different. And the difference, in some way, is articulated by the initial nature of their movement. So, in some places, let's say in East Africa, you have the classic case of diaspora, where over generation they've lost the language, they've sort of they've um, become assimilated into the local population. But a large part of that was the fact that in the late 19th century, when the British came they gave all of these, the below soldiers who were working there, the options that the only way that you can stay over there is by bringing your family over or settling with the family that you have over there. So basically, you mm-hmm. fix your domicile. So that fixing of the domicile, they give them the land, ended up shaping how they look right now. In other places, you don't have that. formula. In Oman, for example, there's families that have been living in Oman for much longer, but they still would be bilingual they would be culturally very Baloch, much more distinct in that sense. So, And that has to also do with the fact that these Gulf states still depend on constant circulation of Baloch to come into their armies, even until today, a state like Bahrain has by some approximates around 40% Baloch in their security forces. There's a constant, every generation, there's a new wave of people coming in. And as a result, they look more like the I'd say like local cosmopolitan who also have this, their own identity in themselves of, of their own language, but they can switch code and become more Arabized when need be.
0: Do you see this kind of longing for a Baloch homeland? Are people very much at home in Oman or is this sense? I mean, when we talk about diaspora, we often find that there's this longing to return or to continually connect with the homeland. Where is their homeland And how do these different groups around the Indian Ocean interact with that homeland on a discursive level, but also in terms of physically going back and forth? Are those connections still alive?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, at one level, the situation of Balochistan is similar to the Kurdish question, where you have a large group of population that is essentially stateless. They do not have a state of their own. And to that extent, these uh, places have a a long, rich historical tradition of their fight for self-determination. There's a long-standing movement for uh, separation within both the Pakistani side of Balochistan and the Iranian side as well. But having said that, it would be short-sighted to say that all Baloch are geared towards this realization of a Balochistan homeland as the ultimate project, especially in places like Oman and Bahrain and the Gulf, where where they've over the years they've actually tried to make even claims that you know that Baloch actually their homeland was uh, Arabia itself. That the Balochistan their movement to buy Balochistan itself was a later historical moment. And also they've got of, uh, the nature of their work in which they, a lot of them come to join the militaries, which, which is a very intense is like in some ways very distinct from other forms of labor. It's, it requires your material, not just material sacrifice, but sacrificing your body, sacrificing your will and so on. So they've to kind of shape that. They've also been reoriented their ideological connection as well. I always say that, that normally when you think of the nations, you think a nation is composed of people who are born of the same blood. But then you have this other historical tradition, which doesn't get talked about often enough, is that you can become a part of a nation by taking blood in its name. And you have variations of this in different places. America has a program in of a military to green card. French Legion is an example of it. So the Gulf states also surprisingly have a variation of that program, uh, which is surprising because normally when you think of Gulf states, these are states that are impossible to get citizenship in. very rare for some South Asian immigrant to get a passport, except for these people. Except for in Bahrain, where there's in 2011, when the Arab Spring protests started to happen, one of the news that came out, and it was, um, there was a big sort of scandal in Bahrain itself, was that these below soldiers were being given, given passports, that they were being allowed to settle. So, and, and of course it was read as this, this deliberate demographic uh, manipulation on the part of the Sunni majority government to get the Sunni baloch and, and manipulate that. But at another level, it was, as, as I said, it's, it's part of this historical tradition of becoming part of a nation by joining its military, which historically is, you can see elements of it in several places
0: how did the baloch tell their own story of becoming a part of the nation i mean do do they see themselves as this outsider group do the baloch see themselves as sort of opportunist Probably no one sees themselves as opportunists, but but how do they make sense of the fact that they've come from another place? They're hired by the sultan, they're kind of represented as a foreign army, and yet they, in this case, they haven't moved on. They've settled for generations. So how do they position themselves vis-a-vis the more local population, given that specific job that they do.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, at one level, it's a relationship similar to the Indian Ocean in general, where the question of who is local, who is indigenous, kind of it falls apart. It becomes difficult to differentiate at some point in time. But for these people, one of the interesting things I found was that they found themselves in the history of these different places at several critical moments. So they saw themselves not outsiders, but as crucial to the state itself. They were fundamental to how that's the society in those places worked. And you would see this. For example, in there in in Muscat, there's two large forts that are supposed to be named after former Balot soldiers, and that's the first thing when you enter Muscat. That's the first thing that you see, so in that way, they say, look, we've been the gateway into this land all along. In East Africa, you see similar things where you 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 know you'd see them mention of maybe not ethnically, but also mention of but maybe mention of the specific person who was involved in conquering these forts in the 16th century. So then they said, look, we've not been we're not new. People where it's, we've been there from the sixteenth century, and these states that rule right now would not have been possible had we not been there. And so they're the unsung soldiers of them of, of these places in some ways.
0: How do they deal with this term that I guess maybe the British popularized it? This term mercenary? Can this term mercenary do useful work for us? And do people accept?
1: Yeah. To be honest, I mean, it's a term that I've struggled with a lot. I've gone back and forth several times about. If I want to use it or if if I don't want to use it. And I've kind of s- decided, at least for the moment, that it's a useful term because of the fact that the, the other alternative that I was playing with was the idea of military labor, which is a more neutral term to describe these people. But the term military labor, I felt, did a disservice to some of the earlier histories by labor you mean somebody who's very downtrodden who's very low ranked it doesn't talk about these these grand conquests that they they kind of recollect uh, in their in their memory but also the other reason that i wanted to stick with this term is is to, to May make a push for some kind of analytical sophistication to it the reason that the term mercenary almost is is an insult is because of the fact that we see that it is the antithesis to citizen soldiers so the reason that i've decided to stick with this term mercenary despite all its you know drawbacks and all the baggage that comes with it is to make a push against seeing citizen soldiers as historical norm I mean, if you look at in the long duration of history, you'll realize that actually professional armies of citizen soldiers only became a dominant and a universal fact in, let's say, the last century. But across historical time, states have always used outsiders as their soldiers, people who are not who are entrepreneurs of some kind, people who, who can join, fight for a state for a certain point in time, then leave another state. So historically, this has really been the norm. But Because there's such a bias for this 20th century institutional norm of professional soldiers that anything that's not that becomes a deviant, it becomes an agent of disorder, they're an agent of chaos. They're not stabilizers or they're not, you know, something that can produce a stable functional system. But. When we go back in time, we realize that actually they have been much more common than the professional armies. So that's one of the reasons that I keep with this term mercenaries, at least initially, is to is to make some kind of space for these other variations of arranging states' military.
0: Is this a term that works for people on the ground as well? When you were doing your field research, did you... Did you ask them what kinds of terms they use to describe this relationship?
1: Yeah, most. I mean, they would mercenaries would be rare for them to use. They would normally call themselves soldiers, police officers. So it's the more neutral term in that sense. But it, again, those terms that there's, there's sometimes you have to make a choice between like, is an emic category useful for conceptual purposes or not? So at some point in time, I realized that, that even though like, the term soldier was more sort of in currency with these people themselves, but it didn't bring out peculiarity of their relationship, It didn't bring out the specificity of this and this to even make a push for expanding what it means to be a mercenary itself. Initially, when I actually came into the project, which was in 2011, and that was when Bahrain had Arab, the Arab Springs had just the protests had just started in Bahrain, news came out that Bahrain was largely using mercenary forces. I started following who these people were, and initially I thought these were a variation of Blackwater and uh, G4S, these um, large private military company, let's say. But as I followed it, I realized that most of them were actually not from the West, but they were South Asians. And you started seeing advertisements in Pakistani newspapers done by a subsidiary of Pakistani military. So it was a private association for the welfare of retired Pakistani soldiers that was running recruitment campaign for them. And once I start following that, I said, even beyond that, that this advertisement, a lot of them were, it was not sort of open recruitment, but most of these people were, it took me to specific neighborhoods. There were specific neighborhoods from which people were coming. So even in just this example, a Blackwater company, and the Gulf also has these retired British soldiers, which somehow continue to stick around. So you have the retired British soldiers. You have these private military companies, you have welfare association of a third world country with large army, like a Pakistani military army. And then you have these people who have this long tradition. So even within this, Thing. you got, I have like four or five different ranges of variations of how to be a foreign soldier. So I wanted to get a term that captures this diversity that can capture bring them all in for me to sort of later explicate and differentiate and sort of tease them out.
0: So they're balancing between being intensely local, and foreign at the same time. You know, having these historical connections for, you mentioned the 16th century, I think. So contending with that deep history, but then this uh, recruitment that you're talking about, it was through newspapers. Were there other kind of networks, deeper, like family level recruitment, or was it happening primarily through the state or through private newspapers?
1: Yeah. So initially, when I started this project, I thought that this was, um, you know, just Pakistani. Pakistani military has overall has a reputation of sending its soldiers abroad. And it's interesting to think about why does it have this legacy? So it has this, you know, it's throughout the 60s and 70s, a lot of the Gulf armies were really actually based out of Pakistan. I mean, there's a funny story of when the Gulf states bought these jets from the U.S., but they didn't have either the pilots or the bases to run them. So they sent them to Pakistan. So there were these American planes that were being flown by Pakistani pilots in Pakistan, but with the Gulf flag. So you had this kind of Pakistani history itself has this peculiar phenomena of fighting foreign wars. So initially, I thought it was a variation of this as well. And the advertisement was... By this private conglomerate, which is really is within Pakistan, It's this the fauji Foundation? It's called, and it's a subsidiary of Pakistani army, and it's the largest uh, business conglomerate in the country. It owns, you know, everything from cereal, It makes cereals. It makes. It owns land. But the recruitment thing I found out was actually a very recent business that they were entering into. It was, it was a business that they'd entered into in response to the 2011 crisis. They initially recruited something like 300 soldiers. That was the first wave of recruits. And few months into their service, these 300 soldiers started to protest for better, better wages. This is, as you can imagine, this is a country that's that's in itself is plagued by all sorts of revolts. And now you have a situation where your soldiers are saying, you know, if you don't pay us more, we're not going to fight. So this was a dangerous situation. So Bahrain immediately captured all of them, put them on the first plane and sent them back. And when they sent them back, they were in a situation of trying to figure out, okay, what do we do now? And then they did what they've always been doing for so long, and that is that they went to soldiers who have already proven their loyalty, people who've already been serving for long, and asked them to recruit their family, recruit their friends, recruit their kins. And one of the things that I followed during fieldwork was there was specific people who touted themselves as being, they would say, you know, oh, I've recruited 200 people. I've recruited 50 people. It was a, the, a badge of honor that almost people went for when they were there. And it was almost a your status in Bahrain itself was determined by how many people have you recruited for the military. And there was all sorts of unusual stories that came up. One of the most popular, I call them jobber, it was a kind of a colonial term of of people, of people recruiter. One of the ones that I talked to, he was a, a chef in the house of one of the British supervisors. So he was not even in the actual military. But Because of proximity to the British supervisor, he had that kind of trust. So he would often be been giving 300 letters. And he would go back to Balochistan, He would ask people, he'd say, you know, anyone who wants to come in, I have these visas in hand, and then he would give them temporary visas, they would come, and then you would have some kind of very basic, very rudimentary testing of, you know, medical examination. And then they were ready to join. So really, so, and, and that's a story that, that repeats in the history of Bahrain is that they've at various point in time actually tried to wean themselves off of their dependence on what seems like ephemeral social connections. Social connections, you cannot, uh, you can depend on them for, you know, like maybe like soft things, but something like war, security seems like you can't take that risk. So you can't depend on these ephemeral connections. So they've been trying to over the last century at several point in times try to, uh, go to foreign states themselves to say we want to recruit to you directly even during british time they were actually very interested in recruiting directly through the british channel itself but somehow every time they've tried to do it it's worked for a few years but then it kind of fell apart and they'd had to resort to these social networks to end up recruiting.
0: And the sense is that if they're recruited through these social networks, that they will be more loyal, that this sort of protest won't spark up?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually a, a variety of factors, and I've thought about this. And one of, one of this, of course, is this loyalty that if you know someone and he knows someone, so you already have three degrees of verification in some ways. But also... It was about uh, this fact that because they were from, not from official channels, but from social networks, these recruitments could go on even in times when official relationship between states were tense. So, and we saw this actually a few years ago when the war in Yemen was picking up, Gulf State wanted to recruit more soldiers from Pakistan in order to fight in Yemen. But Pakistan military itself has a large Shia contingency and there was protests within the military and they said they refused to participate. So you were in a situation where the official channels had refused. So then you had to go towards more, I'd say, covert or less obvious channels uh, of recruitment. So these, so even in times of tension, even in times when official net, official relationships are not as, as solid, social relationships can function. So that's the other part of it. Another part of why they go... To these networks is that because of the fact that as I said earlier since the 16th century Baloch have been circulating in this broad geography you have now have Baloch who living in different parts and places in the world who can be recruited and they can be recruited for different purposes so let's say if you want if Bahrain is interested in increasing its intelligence agencies to spy on Iran then it starts hiring more Baloch Iranians if it wants to hire uh, soldiers who are more better trained more former soldiers it hires Baloch from the Pakistani province of Punjab because that has a strong tradition of joining the Pakistani military So depending on from what location they hire. Do they go to an urban center? Do they go to a rural area? Do they go to Iran? Do they go to Punjab? So it gives them a flexibility in terms of the options, what needs that they kind of fulfill. So part of it is about having this kind of flexibility in maneuvering your protection services.
0: How do you think this fits into a deeper story of labor in the Gulf, a deeper history? There's this sense when you read through the British archives that every ethnic group has this job that they do and it seems like that's sort of faded away in the 20th century but for some reason the Baloch are still the fighters and it just is this a sort of a problem of ongoing labor shortages in the Gulf can we just sort of write it off like that what's uh, yeah what's part going of it's definitely
1: about about labor shortages and and their current recruitment in many ways is similar to labor recruitment in general the forms in which take expectations and so on in the places they live even. But about this idea of, I mean, continuity and discontinuity, I think generally in historiography, there's a sense that only institutions and state processes are about continuity while people are, you know, or social processes about change. There's some kind of assumption in our broader historical imagination where we assume that if it's a ground up movement, they would fight back against power and they would want change. So you normally, when you're looking at, ethnographic memory. It's all about how it's completely remade in the context of the present. But when you're looking at state forces, when you're looking at institutions, you're more willing to give leeway to the fact that there can be continuity for a long time period, which is, you know, like the US state continues because there's a US constitution and so on. But people themselves, culture change. So culture seems more inbuilt For change, but institutions are sort of built for continuity. And I'm not sure if generally that's true. I'm not sure that it's the social patterns can in many cases outlive institutional histories. And the case that I work with is a good example of this, where, you know, since the 16th century, you've had tremendously different natures of political powers from the Portuguese, to the Mughals, to the English, to the Americans, to independent nation states, But across these fundamental changes, the social processes, the relationships around which through these movements kind of work continues on. So empirically, I'm also sort of conceptually, I'm interested in this idea of social continuities. So part of it is about my own emphasis on this continued tradition as well.
0: And how does this fit in with the fact that many of the Gulf states are Welfare state, so if the Baloch are coming in, doing this job, getting citizenship, they're not sucked into this system where they're happy to just simple government jobs and relax. What keeps this tradition alive for the Baloch, specifically, even though they are, in many cases, citizens?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, of course, in part of it, they're all doing this, is, is my emphasis in the sense that, of course, you have citizens who have since generations moved on. Now they're, you know, doing all sorts of government jobs. Now they're in private sectors and so on. But this tradition somehow continues and there's some kind of proclivity for them to join because of my guess is that in part it's about the simple phenomenon of chain migration as well, right? So it's like you've seen people do it before as an easy access of mobility.
0: It's like a point of entry. A point
1: of entry. In most cases, what you see is that why they prefer these over government jobs is the fact that these jobs give them the, the military job itself in Bahrain. It's usually two days on, one day off. So it's In some ways, it's a part-time job and In the on the day off, almost all of them have some kind of side businesses that they're running. So uh, military itself is only a stepping stone in order to get into other lines of businesses, which could be all sorts of things. I mean, you could have, you know, there's border guards between the Saudi uh, and Bahrain border who would be dealing in selling oil, bring oil from Saudi Arabia and then sell it in Bahrain or cars and so on. So there's some kind of movement like that. And also then it actually turns out that it's not just a, the side businesses, is not just an anecdotal thing, but it's fundamental to the way in which the military works in Bahrain. And Baloch sort of military apparatus works is that these are not full-time soldiers. These are in more historical language, like the Yawman soldiers, are so part-time soldiers, part-time traders, part-time soldiers, part-time businessmen. Again, historically, this seems odd to us today. But you always had soldiers who were part-time farmers, and when you have a good crop season, then you're a farmer. When you have a bad crop season, then you're a soldier, and you're using one to kind of step on off onto the other.
0: That's a way of making ends meet.
1: Making ends meet, exactly.
0: And so for the Bulochu of. Have- been a part of these societies and are going on to the government jobs and becoming Bahraini or Omani nationals and assimilating. And you can decide if if this is happening or if this word is useful. Do they resent the fact that the Baloch continue to come and fill these roles? I mean, do they feel like we've moved beyond that and yet people continue to associate us With the military. Is there this kind of tension there between the old Baloch and new Baloch in these societies?
1: Yes, exactly. You've you've had your finger on, on the matter. It actually is a big source of tension between these different groups. The older settlers for sure are now clamoring that, you know, our role goes beyond the military. We've proven our loyalty. Now we need a bigger share of the pie. But if you if you try to go for the bigger share of the pie, one of the risks is that you lose this doorway into the military. So people who are still the newer entrants, people who are still looking for a way to move from uh, Balochistan to the Gulf states, they're not very happy about this door being closed or them kind of moving on. So it leads to tension between the new community and the old community for sure. And at times they become completely separate and and like they're almost separate groups with very different perspectives on their relationship with Bahrain, on their relationship with Balochistan. The older community now has also more skeptical even of this claim to territorial statehood in Balochistan itself. Uh, because once you've lived for so long in one place, then you become determined. And then, then the, what I was mentioning earlier, these stories of that actually Baloch themselves that there's these um, folklores that say that Baloch themselves migrated from Arab lands themselves. So those myths then become a tool in the hands of these older communities who try to say, look, you know, we've we've actually always been here and we're just returning homeland and we're just like everyone else. But the newer community continues to sort of, you know, make that space for themselves through the military as a channel of mobility.
0: So as a final question, can you talk to us a little bit about how relatable or not, the story of the Baloch is to present-day mercenaries. like Blackwater is so famous, so this is a perfect example. Are there other also famous mercenary groups around the world in a comparable position? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, it's been a growing trend since at least the 90s, since the end of the Cold War, where one of the more prominent ones that started was in the early 90s. South Africa became a major hub for private military companies. Turned out that most of the soldiers were, most of the people joining were from the apartheid armies who were being laid off after the turn of government in South Africa. So these are soldiers who were left out of jobs. And then they decided to form private military companies that went and went on to fight different wars for companies and so on across Africa. And since this 90s moment, there's been a gradual trend of private military companies propping up everywhere. Blackwater is, of course, the most famous, but not the largest actually, G4S, which is a British company, it right now hires more employees than Walmart is the fourth largest employer in the world. But then you also have these semi state owned companies like Russia has its own versions. China has its own versions. I mentioned the Pakistani government has its own version. So there's, so it seems like a lot of states are trying to experiment with different variations and formations of this. But as academics, one of the problems is it seems, it still seems like too much of a scandal for us to study. And there's two ways only in which we talk about them. One is. Either that these mercenaries are cannon fodder, that they're disposable means of violence for the state. The state's going to use them, then it's going to throw them away. They're poor people and they're sort of, you know, discarded away with right away. And the other one is they are merchants of death, that they're power hungry, they're money hungry. All they want is to fight and by fighting, they keep themselves in business. But in between these two kind of extremes of being disposable instruments or being uh, merchants of debt, we do not have the kind of analytical tools to discuss the diverse ways in which they, they form up. Is the Pakistani military, private military company different from the one that's coming up in, let's say, Russia? So that kind of at, at that scale of conversation still needs to be had. And in order to have that conversation, we need elements and concepts from history to explicate the variations of of these formations. So, so in in a way, like to say that these are all mercenaries is to getting rid of the problem. So the so what my project does is that it gives a very unique example of this group of population who have been serving as soldiers or as mercenaries across various different times, across various different places. So within this one example, I can sketch out various different ways of organizing the relationship between the military and the society. So for my book, that's the direction that I want to take into is to kind of figure out How would the relationship between military and society change when we change some of the elements that we assume are almost a given? For example, like this idea of full-time professional citizen soldiers, and that seems to be the given. But what if you have not full-time soldiers but part-time soldiers? What if you have soldiers who are... Not lifelong, but you hire them for a few months during wartime, then you let them go. What if you have soldiers who you do not hire on a fixed salary, but you hire on the basis of that, that they serve a purpose and, the, and they, that they sort of help you secure a certain area. And after secure, then you give them a piece of land in, in that place. Would that relationship change the fundamental nature in which through which the state and society itself functions, I think it's an open question. And given the loads of material on the strong ties between military and the state in general, one would assume that these small changes would end up producing bigger consequences. So what I hope is to use my historical case to tease out some of these possibilities.
0: Thank you. This has been really fascinating and eye-opening. Good luck with the book.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to comment or continue the discussion through Facebook or Twitter. If you'd like to reach out to Amin specifically, you can find him at the National University of Singapore.